Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host. And in today's episode, well, we're talking about an absolutely brutal, terrible figure, a warrior emperor of ancient Rome, a man who reigned in the late 2nd and early 3rd centuries AD, who also proved one of the most significant Roman emperors too, who also originated from North Africa and died in York. His name was Septimius Severus. And in today's episode, we've got a fan favourite of the ancients returning to tell Severus's story. He is Septimius Severus's 21st century biographer. It's none other than Dr. Simon Elliot. Simon's been on the pod before, as I've mentioned. He's talked through topics on Roman history varying from Carausius, the pirate king, to the mystery and the many theories behind what happened to Legio IX Hispana, to Rome's Ninth Legion. But now Simon is back to talk through the story of Septimius Severus, one of his favourite figures from ancient Roman history. And as you're going to hear, the story of Severus, well, it very much is an ancient Game of Thrones. It is brutal. It is bloody. But it is also really extraordinary. And no doubt you're going to love it. So without further ado, to talk through the story of Septimius Severus, Here's Simon. Simon, good to have you back on the podcast, my friend. Tristan, it only seems like yesterday when I was recording another podcast with you. So it's fantastic to be back on. I love working with you guys at History Hit, as you know. I know. We get you back on and it's easy for me because I can just sit back and enjoy as you talk, my friend. And this one, well... Septimius Severus. It's about time we focused on a Roman emperor on the Ancients podcast. It's been some time. And Septimius Severus, Simon, this seems to be the story of one of the most important warrior emperors of ancient Rome. It's probably actually, Tristan, the story of one of the most important human beings who's ever lived. If you look at the story of Septimius Severus, it's completely swamped with superlatives. So to give you an entry point, Septimius Severus was from Leptis Magna in North Africa, so he was African. And because he was the emperor of the Roman Empire when the empire was, I would argue, at its height, he was the most powerful African who ever lived. Secondly, Septimius Severus was a black man. So I would argue he was probably the most powerful black man who ever lived. You could argue Barack Obama may have been, but you know, you're looking at nuancing there. I'd argue he was the most powerful black man who ever lived. And then if you want to look at his place in popular culture, which is an area where no one's really examined it to date, although that may change shortly, in terms of popular culture, the story of Septimius Severus is the real sequel to the movie Gladiator. You know, Whacking Phoenix dies, Commodus is dead at the end of the movie Gladiator. Well, you know that within six months, actually, Septimius Severus, at the point of a sword, became the Roman emperor, and then stayed the Roman emperor at the point of a sword throughout his entirety in power. Well, Simon, you kind of hinted at what the first question would be, which is, of course, set the context of the time period that we're talking. So late 
second century, we've got names such as Commodus. What is the situation in the Roman Empire in those years before Severus rises to power? So a brief bit of background for our listeners, Tristan. So the Roman world, I split it into, when I'm writing my books on the Roman world, into three different time periods. So the Roman Republic through 27 BC, when Augustus becomes the first Roman emperor. And then you have the principate phase of the Roman Empire, which runs through to AD 284, when Diocletian becomes the emperor. And then the dominate, the late phase, which ends with the fall of the Western Empire in 476. So this is in the principate phase of empire. And it's in the middle phase of the Principate Empire before you have the devastating later crisis of the third century. So therefore, the Roman Empire is at its height. And you've just gone through a really lengthy period, actually, of stability. You've had the reigns of the great warrior emperor Trajan, the reign of Hadrian, Antoninus Pius, and then the Diarchy with Lucius Verus and Mox Aurelius. And the empire throughout much of that period until you get to the Diarchy is doing really well. The empire is fairly stable. And then things start happening. Principally, you have the, the Roman Parthian War from 161, and then you have the Marcomannic Wars. The Marcomannic Wars are obviously the ones which are referenced with Russell Crowe and Gladiator. And that actually is a series of very severe conflicts where the Roman Empire struggles, and the king of the Marcomanni ends up leading his troops actually onto the coast of northeastern Italy, to Quella. So therefore, this is a really serious event. And it sends sort of vibrations and schisms through the Roman Empire. And ultimately, you have Mox Aurelius, the final of the two with Lucius Ferris dying, and then his son Commodus becomes the emperor. Commodus is probably, I would argue, the worst Roman emperor of them all. He's mad and bad at the same time. The way he's played by Joaquin Phoenix, I love it, actually, because there's a real flavour of the, the psychotic narcissist, actually, which I think Commodus really was. It's no surprise that when Mox Aurelius dies in his will, he leaves 40 named individuals, all very senior patricians, there to help guide his son because he knows his son's going to struggle. And his son does struggle, and ultimately by... Uh, New Year's Eve 192-193. He's got the backs up of all the elites in Rome and he's assassinated. This begins the year of the five emperors. And so who is the person who immediately rises to power in the year of the five emperors? It's a really interesting figure, actually. Somebody I've written a book about, Pertinax. So Pertinax was actually very important to the story of Septimius Severus because he was Septimius Severus's mentor. Every major posting that Severus went to, we'll talk about later, Pertinax in some way, shape or form was above him and helping him. So Pertinax was the city prefect in Rome at the time when Commodus dies. And the Praetorian prefect and court chamberlain go to him. This is on New Year's Eve 192-193. And Pertinax thinks he's going to be assassinated because many of his colleagues have been assassinated by Commodus. But actually, he's shocked to find that they've come to ask him to take the throne because Commodus has been assassinated. So Pertinax becomes the first emperor in the year of the five emperors. But he only lasts three months because actually he's a very honourable man. And he actually wants to model himself on the philosopher emperor Marcus Aurelius. And he refuses to pay a bribe effectively to the Praetorian guard which they demand of at the end of january 193 and he says no and they come back at the end of february 193 and he says no and they say well you better pay us or we'll kill you and he still says no so they come back at the end of march 193 and they kill him so you end up with a power vacuum with a number of candidates stepping up principally didius julianus but hanging like a sword of damocles you have septimius severus in pannonia superior on the danube who drops down onto Rome in a lightning strike, leading his legions into the Forum Romanum. And he basically becomes the emperor at the point of a sword towards the end of 193 and then stays there until his death in York in 211. So just to rewind a bit there, Simon. So 
Before Personax is assassinated, Severus and Personax, they already have this connection. They've been helping each other. So, I mean, what commands has Personax allowed Severus to gain in those years previously then? It's probably worthwhile if I go through a very brief, and I promise it's brief, biography of Severus, and it'll probably take a minute, but in so doing, I can slot in there for you where Pertinax actually is relevant, and then it sets the scene for what comes later. So you have Severus born on the 11th of April, 145, in Lepsis Magna in North Africa. Then on the 4th of February, AD 211, he dies in York at the age of 65. He's the founder of the Severan dynasty. On his career path from the time he was born in 145, he joins the Senate in 170. And he's very clever and very canny and makes sure that at every stage of his career progression on the Cursus and Aurum, he knows exactly what he's doing. So he joins the Senate in AD 170. AD 175 meets his first wife, Pacquia Marciana. They get married, but there's no children. In 180, he meets Pertinax for the first time because he gets promoted to his first major military command, which is to be the legionary legate, so the general in charge of Legio IV Scythica, which is in Syria. And at the time, Pertinax is the governor of Syria. So Pertinax takes him under his wing, and it's here, by the way, when he, uh, Severus is in Syria, that he meets the real love of his life, while he's still married, actually, to his first wife, who is Julia Domna. Now, in AD 182, Severus then moves back to Rome, which is where his first wife, Pacchia Marciana, dies. And then Severus gets promoted again, and this time to become the governor of his first province. And this province is Gallia Lugdunensis, which is a huge province. It's the middle stretch of Gaul, all the way through from the Channel Islands through to the Alps. And its capital is Lugdunum, modern Lyon. And that's where he becomes the governor. And there he calls Julia Domna over from Syria, where he met her, and they get married. And within a year, Caracal is born and then within another year Gita is born Caracalla his eldest son Gita his youngest son and then while he's there Pertinax himself is then promoted to be the governor of Britain so you can almost see the two of them just across the channel communicating and Pertinax keeping a close eye on Severus Severus is in his first posting as a governor Pertinax has done a number by this time and then later in 190, Pertinax gets promoted to become the city prefect in Rome. And at the same time, Severus gets promoted to become the governor in another major province, this time a vital frontier province, which is Pannonia Superior on the Danube. And that's where they both are at the point where Commodus dies. Severus is in Pannonia Superior and Pertinax is in Rome. Right. And then with Pertinax's assassination, Severus comes storming down with the legions into Rome itself almost taking the emperorship by the tip of a spear, by the tip of the sword. But he's not the only one, is he, in wanting to now claim the emperorship? So the year of the five emperors is a misnomer in a sense, because actually what it indicates is that it was the beginning of a civil war. So two of the five actually are rivals for the throne at the same time that Severus seizes the throne himself. And Severus has to then spend the next few years fighting off these rivals. So the rivals are, in Britain, Clodius Albanus, who's the governor. I love the fact that you have a governor of Britain called Albanus. And then in the East, you have Pescania Niger, who's the governor in Syria, the new governor of Syria. Now, they're both actually good generals in their own right with hugely important reputations amongst the Roman aristocracy. Both had fought in the Marcomannic Wars, has had Severus, has had Pertinax. And now Pertinax is dead, Severus has now become the emperor, and he has to deal with the two of the rivals. So he's very clever, Severus. Every aspect of his career progression is clever, almost like he felt he was born to greatness. So firstly, he makes Clodius Albanus in Britain his Caesar, the junior emperor. He takes the title Augustus, the senior emperor. And for a time, Clodius Albanus buys it. I think it's clearly a conceit, to be perfectly honest, but he buys it, which allows Severus to campaign 
primarily in the east to start with. So he has to deal with the opponent he's got in the east, which is Pescania Niger. And he goes there and defeats him in a major set-piece battle, then begins a war against the great rivals of the Romans in the east, the Parthians, the Persians. But while he's there in 196, remember he becomes the emperor in 193, while he's there in 196, he receives word that Clodius Albinus has wised up to the fact that he's been made a fool of. And the key tell, the key giveaway, which makes Clodius Albinus realise that, that actually Severus is taking him for a fool, is Severus very publicly not only makes Albinus his Caesar, but later then very, very publicly makes Caracalla and Gita, his sons, his Caesars also. So Clodius Albinus sees the writings on the wall, and that's the point when Clodius Albinus then decides he's going to come with all three British legions, so two Augusta from Caerleon, by this time six Victrix from York, and 20 Valeria Victrix from Chester. It brings them all, and the equivalent number of auxiliaries, to Gaul, also manages to convince a Spanish legion to join him as well. And the four legions then start marching towards central Gaul. And Severus gets word of this while he's fighting in the east. And he realises that he's in danger of losing Rome if he's not careful. So he has to then come back himself from the east. And he comes via the Danube, gathering the Danubian legions on the way. And you end up with a titanic battle, which I know you know a lot about as well, Tristan, the Battle of Lugdunum, Lyon, which is probably the largest battle in the history of the Roman Empire. 300,000 men allegedly involved, if you were to believe some of the primary sources. Probably more likely 150,000 men involved, but nevertheless, an enormous battle, which Severus only just wins over two days by the skin of his teeth. But he does win, and he has Albinus beheaded, and then he prances over the decapitated body on his charger, ritually trampling it. And from that point, Severus, I think, has a downer on Britain. Severus is a downer on Britain, as you say. We're going to get back to that in time. But there's so much more to Severus than just his military campaigns. I mean, if we want to focus now, he's now got rid of these rivals. He is the emperor of this massive empire. What are his next steps, Simon? Does he start doing reforms to the empire? Is he building great things? What's his next steps? The first thing to remember about Septimius Severus, Tristan, is that he was the ultimate military tough guy. He got power at the point of a sword. He kept power at the point of a sword. And as you know, and we'll reflect later in the pod, his words on his deathbed to Caracalla and Gita when he died in York were, look after yourselves, which by the way, as we'll also cover, clearly failed, and also look after the military and ignore everybody else. While I'm giving that talk in public and not on a pod, I use superlative that's more aggressive than just saying ignore everybody else. So this is the <laughs> ultimate military tough guy who stays in power at the point of a sword. He hates the Senate. He hates dealing with Roman politics. He's negatively reflected by the likes of Cassius Dio, senator himself, because he was very negative towards the Senate. He just wasn't interested in politics. And he tried to stay away from Rome as much as he could. So if we reflect on his military and political career, the next step is he has unfinished business, doesn't he? His unfinished business is in the east. He's been fighting the Parthians. So he goes back. He's, he's rear secure now. At that point, he's already sent military inspectors to Britain to bring it back into the imperial fold. He's happy with that. And we can come back to what happens in London as part of that event. So he goes back to the east. And there he fights at 198, 199, a hugely successful, hugely successful campaign against the Parthians. Remember the Parthians with their super heavy armoured cataphract lancers and their highly skilled mounted archers, the most difficult opponents the Romans could probably face before the Parthians themselves are replaced by the Sasanian Persians. I always say they're the nearest you'll have to a symmetrical threat to the Romans one-on-one. -on -one. But Severus hammers them. 
absolutely hammers them out of sight. Launches a campaign down the targeting Euphrates valleys, gets to Tessifon, the capital of the Parthian Empire, and, and flattens it. Job done. And then Severus knows when to stop. Doesn't go all the way to the Persian Gulf. He basically he's defeated the Parthians. Job done. Goes back to within the empire, refortifies the the limes in Syria and Arabia extends them slightly, but he doesn't include a huge amount of new territory. He's very clever and very canny. His job's done. He's defeated the Parthians. The box is ticked. He then spends a couple of years having this fabulous journey through North Africa, through Egypt, through Kyrenia, through Libya, into modern Algeria. And having travelled in the region myself last year, everywhere you go in the amazing towns and cities in North Africa, they have this hugely impressive Severan phase. Clearly, as he approached, all the town elders suddenly thought, oh my God, the boss is coming. We better actually get everything spick and span. So temples are built, forums dedicated to Severus, archers built in his honour, and they still exist today. All these cities have a Severan phase, which is principally what we see today, actually. Right, Simon, because that was what I was actually wanted to allude to in that previous question, you know, going away from the military things for a second. It is that monumental architecture. And you pointed, you've highlighted so well there, that this architecture seems to be largely in Roman North Africa. And do you think there is a, for example, places like Lepsis Magna, where he grew up, there is a desire by Severus to ensure that places like that are greatly improved during his emperorship? I think there's a distinction here. So with Leptis Magna, that's separate. That's where he was born. Remember Severus, when he he was born in Leptis Magna, Leptis Magna was the richest place in the richest part of the Roman Empire. It's very counterintuitive to us today. When we we, we look at the world in which we live, we see it through a very European, northwestern European perspective, actually. But actually, in the Roman world, North Africa was the powerhouse. It was the richest part of the empire. It's also a powerhouse for the arts and a powerhouse for literature and a powerhouse for religion. Uh, Leptis Magna was the centre of it, you know. Might not have been the capital, that was Carthage, but Leptis Magna was the richest part. Severus's dad was the richest person. Well, his granddad certainly was the richest person in Leptis Magna. So he was born into the richest part of the Roman Empire to the richest person in the richest part of the Roman Empire. And by the way, let's reflect that he's a black man from North Africa as well. So for the Romans, I would argue that was not unusual at all. That's absolutely normal for the Romans. And so there's Severus, and he's in Leptis Magna. And in Leptis Magna, he decides as he goes through, he's going to rebuild it in his image. So that's completely separate. This is him sending imperial grandeur to the place where he was born. And it becomes this fabulous, incredible place. Everywhere else he goes to, everywhere in the empire, not just in North Africa, but everywhere in the empire, there's a Severan phase as everybody scrambles to impress the great warrior emperor. And even in Rome, I can politically join the dots here very briefly for you, Tristan. His next move, he gets dragged back to Rome, doesn't want to go from North Africa, goes back to Rome, doesn't stay very long, as you know. But while he's there, he rebuilds central Rome. If you go to the Imperial Palace, it's got the Severan buildings. I would argue about a third of the Imperial Palace on the Palatine Hill you see today is Severan. When you're on that viewing platform, the, the recreated viewing platform, that's the recreated viewing platform of Severus. So that's the view he and his family, Julia Domina, Caracalla and Gita, would have had looking down onto the Circus Maximus. When you look to your left from that viewing platform into the heat and the shimmering heat in the distance, you'll see the Baths of Caracalla 
Well, they actually were initiated by Severus, and they were going to be his gift to Rome. They were going to be the baths of Septimius Severus. And obviously, the psychotic Caracalla decided he named them after himself, but they were the baths of Severus. When you go down to the Forum Romanum, the famous temple of Vesta for the Vestal Virgins, the version you see there was rebuilt by Julia Domna. So everywhere you go, even in Rome, with all its other emperors, and before that, the Republic, it has a huge element from the Severan phase. And then we can talk about Britain later, I dare say, but if you go to London, the city of London today, the square mile, is defined by the medieval walls, which are built on top of the Roman walls, which were built by Septimius Severus, to tell the Roman Londoners what would happen to them, because he was so good at monumentalising himself if they misbehaved again. So everywhere you go, there's this unwritten story, which I'm passionate in telling, because so few people know it, that there's an elephant in the room, and the elephant in the room is Septimius Severus. And we definitely know that Severan link to Roman London very well, don't we? Having us both worked on a TV documentary project all about that a couple of years ago now. Certainly did. We certainly did. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hi there, everyone. I want to tell you about a podcast that I think you'll like. It's called Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. It's narrated by my good friend and host of American History hit, Don Wildman. On Mysteries at the Museum, Don travels across the US to find objects that tell shocking stories of American history. You'll hear about the portrait linked to the first bank robbery in American history and about the failed invention from World War II that became one of the most popular toys for kids. Uncover the secrets behind these incredible objects and learn about the history of war, science, crime, and everything in between. You're going to love this podcast all about the remarkable objects in our treasure houses that are museums. Please go and check it out. Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. Simon, I want to keep on Rome a little bit because... I want to talk a bit more about military reforms, about Severus reforming the army, but also a particular unit in Rome, the Castra Praetoria, which is the Praetorian Guard. So talk to me about how Severus reforms this elite unit of his emperorship. So there's a key word here, Tristan, the key word's payback. <laughs> Never cross Septimius Severus. So when Severus becomes the emperor in 193, he's drawn to Rome to revenge his mentor Pertinax. So Severus is drawn to Rome because Pertinax has been assassinated after three months in power for trying to do the right thing. 
and he's assassinated by the Praetorian Guard. The Praetorian Guard are very interesting because often they are elite warriors and often they're not. And it reflects the nature of the Emperor. And under Commodus, they become not elite warriors. They're a sort of a fe- they're portrayed as being very effete and living the high life in Rome. And they just want to continue the good life and Pertinax doesn't want them to, so they assassinate him. And he doesn't pay them the money they want either. So Severus comes to Rome and his first thing he does is he gathers the entire 5,000 members of the Praetorian Guard in the Forum Romanum has them strip naked, all 5,000 of them. And at this point, they don't know what's going to happen to them. He could ease, he's could he got three legions, maybe four with him. So that's 25,000 men compared to 5,000, clearly rather a fake Praetorian guards. And his warriors, by the way, set the Severan warriors from the Danube by the elite soldiers in the Roman Empire at the time because they've just fought the Marcomannic Wars. So they are the military tough guys fighting for the military tough guy emperor. So he strips them naked, but instead of killing them, he basically banishes them to live the rest of their life 100 miles from Rome. But then... Very cleverly, everything Severus does, you know, there's a reason. It's all—it's like he's got a plan, a textbook plan. He recreates the Praetorian Guard, but from his own Danubian veterans, so they are ultra-loyal and ultra-hard and tough, and he doubles the size. So he has 10,000 Praetorian Guards who are all completely loyal to him, not the ones who he inherited from Commodus. And that's the first of his reforms. And I argue in my various books on Severus that he's the first of the great reforming Roman emperors of the Principate. And then you go into the Dominating, you have the reforms of Diocletian and Constantine. When it all began, I think, with Severus. So the classic image of the Roman legionary of the high Principate is going to be Lorica Segmentata, banded iron armour, Imperial Gallic helmet, a couple of pillums, Gladius Hispaniensis sword, Puggio dagger, and the usual accoutrements that you'd see on any textbook or any popular fiction book about... The big scutum shield. The big scutum shield, the big scutum shield, the big body shield is exactly right. By the time Severus becomes the emperor, the Romans have been fighting mounted opponents more and more. So they've been fighting Sarmatians who fought with the Marcomannian Quadi in the, the Marcomannic Wars. They're fighting the Parthians who are nearly all the mounted opponent. So therefore, the panoply of the Severan legionary has begun to change. And it's Severus in some of his units that you see the introduction of a long spear to keep mounted opponents away, replacing the pilum. And it's under Severus you see, for the first time, the replacement of the shorter stabbing fencing sword, the Gladius Hispaniensis, with a longer spatha cavalry sword, which is a not only a stabbing sword, but also a slashing sword. All of that gives the legionary more reach, or the auxiliary more reach. You go even later probably into the post-Septimius Severus phase of the Severan dynasty, you start at that point seeing the replacement also of the scutum with an oval or a round body shield, which is more manoeuvrable than the very, very, very heavy scutum, which is specifically there to fight other opponents. This all begins, I think, this change, which is ultimately and finally manifest in the reigns of Diocletian and Constantine, begins with Severus. Well, there we go. So Severus, he kickstarts these military reforms. These are massive military reforms, aren't they, as well, Simon? They must take so much time to implement as well. As you say, this is just the start. It takes many, many years for him to fully implement. But with his hardened army... He's been in the east, he's been to North Africa, he's been dragged, kicking and screaming back to Rome. What leads him to this northwestern edge of the Roman Empire, to Britain, a story you know so well? Take it away. How does he end up here? And dying in York in the middle of winter. <laughs> yeah, no spoilers. No spoilers, Simon. Come on. <laughs> I cannot en- emphasize in my research how much Septimius Severus loathed being in Rome. <laughs> <laughs> he just literally couldn't wait to get away from Rome. And also the drip feed of sort of scandalous narrative you get from the primary commentators is about Caracalla and Gita, who 
sort of uh, a young men living in the shadow of this ultimate military hard man who's the emperor. By the way, he has more legions than any other Roman emperor as well, Severus, because for his eastern campaigns, he creates legios 1, 2, and 3, Parthica. So he has 33 legions. No other Roman emperor filled with 33 legions. But Augustus managed with 27 after the three he lost in Teutoburg Forest. So Severus has a bigger Roman army than even Augustus. So Caracalla and Gita are living the high life in Rome. You can join the dots. <laughs> he just wants to get them out of there because they're causing so much trouble. The very different characters as well you know Caracalla is a military hard man like Severus but he doesn't have the real politic in him and there's a real chance he was actually properly psychotic especially given what happens later whereas Gita was a much more thoughtful individual much more into the arts etc and remember Julia Domna the wife of this power couple of Severus and Julie Dobner, she was a massive patron of the arts. In the Roman world, she was as powerful in her own way as Severus was. But despite that, Caracalla and Gita are creating mayhem and mischief, and Severus wants to get out of Rome. So he looks at what he can do. Now, any Roman emperor would, as you know, Tristan, measure their success against not Julius Caesar, who wasn't an emperor. Caesar is the most important Roman to us today. But to the Romans, it wasn't. To the Romans, it was Augustus, the first emperor. So every Roman emperor, given the chance if they lasted long enough, would look at the achievements of Augustus and try and match those or better them. And if they better them, they could say, I beat the great Augustus. And there are two things which Augustus didn't do. And the poet Horace, writing at the turn of the first century BC, first century AD, says in a poem, which is meant to be eulogising Augustus, the great Augustus will only be a god if he conquers the pesky Parthians, the Persians, and the pesky Britons. And Augustus did neither. So Severus has done one. He defeated the Parthians. No other Roman emperors conquered the far north of Britain. Domitian could claim through Agricola to have done so, but it was so fleeting that I don't think the Romans thought it counted. So Severus looks across the entirety of his world, most powerful man in his known world, arguably, it's arguable, the most powerful man in the world at the time. What do I do to actually have my ultimate crown and glory? And he's in his 60s and he's got bad gout. He might be aware that you know he might not have long to live. He just wants to go out with the ultimate achievement, which is to conquer the far north of Britain. So he decides to do it. In 207, he receives, allegedly, a letter from the governor in Britain, Senecio, saying the whole of Britain is in danger of being overrun, the whole province. It doesn't say the northern frontier, Hadrian's Wall at this time, is in danger. It's very specific. The whole province is in danger of being overrun by invaders from the far north, the bit of Britain which the Romans never conquered, modern Scotland. I need your help or I need reinforcements. And whether this was a setup by Severus or not, it's clearly a boon to him because he said, oh, brilliant, right, you can have both. So Severus goes himself and takes the largest campaigning force ever to fight on British soil. So you're talking about 50,000 land troops and 7,000 naval troops. The nearest you'll get to that campaigning in Britain is probably in the Wars of the Roses, and it gets nowhere near to that. So this is the largest ever forced campaign in Britain. It's enormous. And ultimately, in 208, it gathers around York, which Severus turns into his imperial capital. So he doesn't just turn it into his campaign headquarters. He brings senior members of the Senate. He brings his imperial fiscus treasury, and he brings Julie Domna, Caracalla, and Gita. So he creates the capital city of the Roman Empire for this brief, and it becomes a three-year period, in York. York, for your listeners who know from the Roman period, north of the River Ouse, where the Minster is today, that was the legionary fortress. South of the River Ouse, that was the Cannabis civilian settlement. So he turns the fortress 
into the imperial capital and then he lives in the Principia which is the headquarters building in the middle of the fortress and the Praetorium which is the living quarters for the person running the fort in this case the emperor and he gathers around York 50,000 men he then launches two campaigns in 209 and 210 into Scotland and it's brutal it's absolutely brutal. You can imagine this monolithic force, like a glacier, smashing its way through the Scottish borders. Nothing can stand before it. And there may be a chance that he turns some of the Roman forts to the south of Hadrian's Wall into concentration camps. Soon he reaches the fourth, and when he's at the fourth, he builds a bridge of probably 900 boats, I estimate, in one of my books, across the fourth. Then he divides his force into two, and he gives Caracal, who's fighting with him, Gita stays with Julie Domner in York to run the empire. Remember, to my point, Julie Domner and Severus are a power couple. So for them, it's not unusual for Julie Domner to be given, while Severus is campaigning, the day-to-day job of running the empire. Severus is now on the fourth, divides his army into two. Caracalla gets two-thirds of it, so two-thirds of the 50,000. Severus gets one-third of it, probably including Legio II Parthica, his own pet legion, effectively, and the Praetorian Guard. And then Caracalla grinds his way up the Highland Boundary Fault, up to Stonehaven on the North Sea coast, and in so doing, seals off the lowlands of Scotland. And once that's done, and at the same time, by the way, Severus sends the Classic Britannica Regional Fleet to also seal off the coast. Once that's done, there's nowhere for the natives in the far north to go. They're trapped. There's no evidence there was any set-piece battle because they weren't allowed to gather. Then Severus takes his third. He crosses, smashes straight through Fife, gets to Carpu on the Tay, builds another bridge of boats, maybe 400 boats, crosses into the upper Midland Valley, so the lowlands proper there, and then he smashes all the way through, eviscerating everything before him. And it's a brutal campaign. The Britain super piece at the end of 209, they all go back to York. Coins are minted. Everyone gets the name Britannica. Everything's great, except Tristan, that the native Britons aren't happy with the fact they've been so brutally treated, clearly. And although they may have signed a peace treaty, they rebel over winter. And this time, Severus loses the plot, absolutely loses the plot. And allegedly... He stands on a podium in front of his army at the beginning of the campaigning season in 210, uses a quote from Homer, from the Iliad, voicing Agamemnon, to explain why his troops have got to commit a genocide. He tells them to kill everybody you can get your hands on. And the force goes back. The campaign's fought in exactly the same way. This time, even if any quarter was given the first year in 209, this time there is no quarter given Everybody is killed. Everybody is slaughtered. And then there's no one to have a peace with. And actually, it looks as though archaeologically, what we find now matches what the primary sources say, because there's clearly a major depopulation event that takes place in the north of Scotland around this time. And it lasts for about 80 years, you know, reforestation on agricultural land, settlements disappearing. Clearly, anybody who got into the highlands, they survived. But anybody in the lowlands, they were either killed or enslaved. And that's it. So Severus has done it. He's, he's done something no Roman emperor has ever done. He's conquered the north of Scotland. He goes back to York with Caracalla and Gita. But sadly, in February 211, his job done, he dies in the freezing cold of a British winter. So you think about this story arc of Severus. Born in the spring, the heat of a North African spring, the blistering heat of a North African spring, into the richest family in the richest part of the Roman Empire, dying in the freezing cold of the wild west of the Roman Empire in York in 211. Simon, it's such a gripping, gruesome story. I want to keep a bit more on Severus in northern Britain before we go to his death and the aftermath, quickly wrapping it all up. 
It is absolutely horrific, you know, that kind of genocidal order. It kind of almost feels like a reverse Boudicca when she and her warriors were killing everyone in sight in Colchester, London, all those centuries beforehand. And I think if I remember correctly, in one of the lowland brochs, these Iron Age houses in Scotland, which were built later than the ones further in the Highlands, that they did find a Roman spear or a, a ballista bolt or something in one of these brochs. So maybe that's evidence of one of these violent assaults. Just quickly on a question kind of regarding that, it's regarding the military landscape of that area of, well, Midlands, Scotland. I'm thinking like the Antonine Wall, but also going further down into Northern England with Hadrian's Wall too. How does Severus alter, how does his campaigns, how does he transform this Northern boundary of Roman Britain? How does he change like those great frontiers like the Antonine Wall and like Hadrian's Wall? I personally think Severus planned to fully incorporate modern Scotland up to the Highland line, so the lowlands, into the Roman Empire, if he'd have survived. I think that's what would have happened. And there you'd have seen then something very different to today, in that there would be full-scale remnant Roman stone-built infrastructure, urban infrastructure, in the lowlands of Scotland in a way that there isn't today. So we're left with two physical, main physical legacies of Severus and this campaign. One is that he did, as he got into the far north, refortify the Antonine Wall and some of the forts there to give him sort of rear protection. And then on the way north, he did refortify Hadrian's Wall as well, below the Antonine Wall. And then clearly after Severus died and everybody went home, another phase of refortification went on with Hadrian's Wall as well. But they're the only two real legacies. And it's really interesting, isn't it, that if I go to one of my favourite places to go in the Roman Empire, Tristan is Corbridge, sort of in the shouting distance of Hadrian's Wall, which if you think about, it's the farthest northern town in the Roman world, you know, by a long way, by the way. Uh, well, that wouldn't be the case if Severus had have survived. He died in February 211. If he hadn't have died, the story of the British Isles will be markedly different. Let's go back to that wintry day in York. What happens next? So let's first reflect on a point I made earlier. On his deathbed, allegedly, he tells Caracal and Gita, look after yourselves, look after the military and ignore everybody else. Remember, I always use the biggest superlative instead of ignore, because he was a gruff military man. By the way, Severus chose to keep his guttural, localised North African accent, this is the way it's described in the primary sources, rather than have a cut glass Latin sort of Roman accent. And he was educated in the finest place to be educated in Rome. He chose to keep true to his North African roots all the way through his life. And by the way... When he was campaigning in Britain, he knew that there might be trouble in other parts of the empire internally. So anybody he thought might cause trouble, he also replaced with North Africans. So he was North African to his very soul. And he went to his death as such as well. So he dies. And Caracal and Agiti can almost imagine them staring at each other across the funerary bed with Severus dead in front of them. And they both slowly look towards the door, look at each other, look towards the door. And they're off. And they race each other literally from that point separately with their own entourages back to Rome. And they're basically hot-footing it, speeding along, trying to get back to Rome first. Because Severus has said, I want you to be the new diarchy like Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Ferris. But they're not interested in that at all, especially the psychotic Caracalla. And they get back to Rome. And within a year, probably by the end of the year in 211, we have Caracalla in the Imperial Palace on the Palatine Hill probably in the rooms his father named, the Severan buildings, stabbing or having stabbed Gita to death, who dies bleeding in Julia Domna's arms. It's a tragedy. Simon, it's an absolutely gruesome part of the story, the immediate. This is the immediate aftermath of Severus's death as well, isn't it? It almost completely, everything that 
he's been aiming for with trying to create a dynasty and that diarchy, it just completely shatters with the characters who are his children, with the psychotic, potentially psychotic character of Caracalla. But Severus's significance still remains and endures, doesn't it? Because we have the whole Severan dynasty, which does ultimately emerge. But it's a very ill-favoured dynasty. The high point of it was Septimius Severus himself. I mean, Caracalla himself is assassinated in 217 while urinating on campaign. Gita's already dead, of course, at the end of the year when Severus died himself. And all of the other candidates, including ultimately Alexander Severus, are all ill-fated and ill-favoured as well. And of course, you have the assassination by Maximus, Maximian Thrax of Alexander Severus in 235 as the event which traditionally initiates the beginning of the crisis of the 3rd century, when the Roman Empire brawl nearly collapses across the board. And it nearly just completely implodes. You have the first large-scale incursions, proper large-scale incursions over the Rhine. You have more incursions over the Danube to match the Marcomanni and the Marcomannic Wars. You have the arrival of the Sassanid Persians, who are a far bigger threat than the Parthians to the Romans in the east. And in that century, you know, humiliate the Romans, as you know. You have the Plague of Cyprian, which is a full classical ancient world plague, which lasts for 20 years. You have economic collapse, you have civil wars, you have strife, and the empire nearly collapses. And it actually takes one of my other favourite Roman emperors, Diocletian, another military hard man. You might want to make your own judgments why I like these military hard man emperors, but Diocletian is definitely a military hard man. At the level of Septimius Severus, it takes Diocletian to drag the empire kicking and screaming out of the morass it finds itself in the crisis of the third century. And to do that, he has to completely change the nature of the empire. So suddenly he's not now the princeps, the first among us, as you have the Augustan emperors and the principate. He's the dominate emperor. He's effectively a, an Eastern potentate, totally separate from the rest of Roman society. The nature of the Roman empire changes and we start calling it the dominate after the word dominus. So Severus actually... His legacy, which should have been amazing in seeing Britain, for example, the far north becoming a normal part of the Roman Empire, actually turns out to be a, a huge, from the way he'd have viewed it, disappointment. It's a terribly sad ending to the story, actually. An epic tale tinged with tragedy indeed. Simon, it is such an extraordinary story, that of Septimius Severus. And I'm so glad to get you back on the podcast at such short notice too, to talk all about him in this whistle-stop 40-minute episode today. Last but certainly not least, you have written a book, well, several books in regards to Septimius Severus. So my main book at the moment about Septimius Severus is Septimius Severus in Scotland through Greenhill Books. And that is the story briefly of the biography, but then the story of his campaigns in the far north. Separately, I've written a biography of Pertinax, the son of a slave who became the emperor of Rome, the beginning of the, the Severus story, really. And I've got another book coming out, which is going to be called Roman Britain's Black Emperor, which is going to be coming out hopefully later this or early next year. Well, Simon, it just goes to me to say thank you so much for taking the time to come back on the podcast today. Always a pleasure. Look forward to talking with you again. Well, how about that? There was Dr. Simon Elliott returning to the ancients to tell the brutal, the gruesome story of the Emperor Septimius Severus. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Now, last things from me, you know what I'm going to say. If you're enjoying The Ancients and you want to help us out, then you can do something incredibly easy, incredibly quick. Just leave us a lovely rating on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcast from. It greatly helps us as we continue our mission, our infinite mission, to share these amazing stories from our distant past with you and with as many people as possible. But that's enough rambling on from me, and I'll see you in the next episode.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.